Well, welcome back to our fourth week now in the Talking Points class. Uh, Today we'll begin a series of uh, issues related to human sexuality, kind of the facts about human sexuality and distinction, sexual distinctions as male and female, and sexual relations as male and female as well. These are huge talking points in our culture right now, in part because these issues display the fault lines of the secular revolution that we've already talked about. As one author said, all the intellectual and cultural breakthroughs of modernity were in some way or other linked to the sexual desires their progenitors knew to be illicit, but which they chose nonetheless. Their theories were ultimately rationalizations of the choices they knew to be wrong. That's a rather sweeping claim, but points to, I think, an, an accurate truth. Tim Keller wrote The Reason for God in 2008. You may be familiar with that book, a variety of arguments providing a case for belief in God and Christianity. Uh, but then in 2016, 18 year, eight years later, he uh, released a sort of after-the-fact prequel called Making Sense of God. And uh, in that, he says he felt this sort of prequel was necessary because our culture makes Christianity seem so implausible that people won't even engage arguments about the reason for God uh, because the existence of God seems so unbelievable. He says one of the reasons that Christianity seems so implausible is that it impinges on sexual freedom and individual autonomy and gender expression. And because sex and gender expression have, uh, and, and individual freedom have uh, changed so much in our culture, and Christianity has not changed on these issues, uh, Christianity becomes unbelievable. Uh, so as one author said, human life and sexuality have become the, the watershed moral issues of our age. And so uh, we'll take the next uh, several weeks to consider a variety of much-discussed sexual issues, talking points in our current um, cultural setting. And this morning we'll be talking about homosexuality in particular. So I taught actually in this classroom just two and a half years ago, November 2015, on, on this same issue. We took a few weeks going through uh, the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. So we worked through all of the passages of the Bible that address this topic, uh, relying on, on this book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice by Robert Gagnon. It kind of remains the standard. If you're interested in engaging uh, what the biblical text says in a variety of places. This is certainly the standard work. It's thick and scholarly, but very helpful. Um, But this morning, we're not going to do that. Uh, I want to do something different than that this morning. Uh, We're not zooming in on the Bible's teaching on this topic so much as we're wanting to know, as we will with all the topics in this class, how do you apply a biblical worldview to these issues and engage a secularizing society? Um, So we also aren't addressing this issue from the angle of personal struggle with homosexual attraction. So, of course, there are many Christians who feel some degree of same-sex attraction and yet may at the same time hold this kind of fundamental conviction, believing and understanding Scripture to prohibit homosexual activity. And so for someone in that case, you know, there's there's a great great struggle, and I, I know that This happens for many people, that's the case, Uh, but we aren't addressing homosexuality from that angle this morning, so that's kind of a a disclaimer. 
but I know there's that struggle, and I, I would just encourage you, if you feel that, if you're, if you're going through that struggle, don't do that alone. I would encourage you to talk to someone about that. Um, perhaps you have a lot of shame around those feelings. Perhaps it's something you've been wrestling or, or suffering through. I would just encourage you to talk to someone about that. Many churches don't talk about these issues. At Christ Covenant, we want this to be a, an issue that's, that's on the table, um, that's not off limits. And so I want you to know there are many people who would be happy to um, discuss this with you, try to be an encouragement to you and work alongside you. Feel free to reach out to one of the pastors here. You would not be the first, I promise. Um, and we, We'd love to help you with that. But primarily this morning, we're wanting to think about how to relate to a society that's increasingly embracing homosexuality. So Obergefell, the Supreme Court decision uh, in favor of same-sex marriage in 2015, um, ruled that same-sex couples have a right to marry, a constitutional right to marry. It made, it made marriage, same-sex marriage, the, the law of the land in the U.S. Um, and I think that happened much more quickly uh, than anyone, in, including homosexual activists, expected. Uh, we were in Ecuador, actually, when that happened and uh, flew back and, you know, heard about this decision that had been made and just recognized the significance of what had happened while we were gone. It was no longer just Massachusetts or one of the liberal states, um, but we became an entire nation that affirmed it. Um, so how do we as Christians who hold a traditional view, biblical view of marriage and sexuality, uh, think about uh, this issue? And we have to begin with a biblical anthropology. Uh, what is it to be human and what was the creator's design for uh, sexuality and marriage? At the beginning of the universe, Genesis tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in chapter 2, uh, we have a fuller, kind of more detailed account of the, the woman being created out of the man. And then Moses, the author of Genesis, uh, draws this kind of timeless, universal principle from the account of creation in chapter 2. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So one of the first things we learn is that God creates uh, male and female in absolute harmony. So there are two distinct genders. Uh, God created and blessed the physical bodies, these, these genders of, of Adam and Eve. And their bodies were distinct from one another, uh, and yet in a complementary way. Uh, and there was no shame in this. There was happiness. They were naked and unashamed. You know, we would feel ashamed to have our bodies naked and exposed, but that doesn't point to a shamefulness of the body. The body is not shameful. Uh, there's a beauty and glory of the human body that is a gift from God. And so Christianity is a very body-positive faith. Uh, God created the body. God created the body in his image. God created male and female bodies in his image. And designed them to relate to one another in perfect synthesis and harmony. Um, so the body parts were complementary. And this creation de design then is definitive uh, for our understanding of how uh, male and female relate sexually. This is called the teleological view of nature. Uh, telos is the Greek word for purpose or goal. And uh, teleology is the idea that we can read signs of God's existence and purposes in, uh, in creation. 
So one implication then is that the physical structures of our body point to and reveal clues to our personal identity. And so, as one author said, a Christian ethic respects the teleology of nature and the body. A Christian ethic, a Christian worldview respects the teleology, the purpose or direction um, of, the nat- of nature in general and the body in particular. So Nancy Piercy says, The biblical view of sexuality is not based on a few scattered Bible verses. It's based on a teleological worldview that encourages us to live in accord with the physical design of our bodies. Um, So living as male and female in accord with the design of our bodies is, is to live in accordance with our maker's intention for us. And then secondly, we should also note that God creates the body and soul in absolute unity. Creates the body and soul in absolute unity. Um, So he blesses the person as good, encompassing both the material and the immaterial aspects of the person. Uh, Both the body as well as the soul contained uh, together with this. So he breathes the soul, the, the life into the body, the flesh. And the Old Testament views the person as a, as a whole, a, a body with the soul that is in it, and it never separates these two. Now, the New Testament points out that the body and the soul are, are distinct components of a person. Um, but without getting into that whole discussion, I simply point out that creation views the person as, as a complete unity, the, the body and the soul woven together. So these are two uh, fundamental uh, aspects of biblical anthropology, what it means to be human. And the, the Christian worldview, of hu- the Christian view of humanity in particular, uh, more than any other approach to, to uh, humanity, uh, enables us to function in ways that are deeply satisfying in the long run. So living in accordance with the maker's design uh, enables us to live in ways that are deeply satisfying in the long run. Our bodies, male and female, were designed with this clear differentiation and yet complementarity, distinct pieces that nonetheless fit together. Uh, by the way, much of, much of what I'm saying you'll see kind of in a distilled version in our statement on marriage, gender, and sexuality that's actually a part of our bylaws we adopted in 2015. You see that on the back of the handout there. Um, so male and female and our bodies were designed in this kind of perfect integration of body and soul. But, of course, the fall distorted both of these dynamics as a result of the fall Uh, Both of these aspects of humanity shattered in endless directions. We'll focus on just a couple related to homosexuality. Um, So first, the fall corrupts the male-female harmony. So Genesis 3 tells us that God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be against your husband and he will rule over you. Um, So there's a principle there that um, proceeds into all humanity and all the universe where there was harmony between male and female. Now there is conflict and pain. And there's now pain in reproduction for for women. And this this is a pervasive principle. Human uh, female sexuality is dominated by this principle. Uh, But there's not only pain in childbearing, there's also conflict with the man. 
So relational strife between men and women becomes the norm. In the very next chapter of Genesis, as sin spirals downward, we read of Lamech, the first man who's recorded to have two wives. And then the Old Testament marriages are like a, a record of corruption and conflict between men and women. You think of all the strife and adultery that occur in the marriages of the Old Testament. Uh, embodying the curse in Genesis 3.16. No wonder Paul then tells us in Romans chapter 1 that it's like men and women gave up on each other. Uh, Romans 1 tells us that one example of human misdirection of the maker's intention in regard to our sexuality is that the male and female gave up on each other sexually. Um, So same-sex activity in Romans 1 is presented as an intrusion and an offense against the maker's intention and design for male-female relationships. So just assuming, again, we're not kind of interacting with all these specific biblical texts, but just assuming a traditional understanding of Romans chapter 1, we learn that one aspect of uh, fallen life as humans includes the desire to ignore God's design for the body and to exalt in misdirected passions, uh, pursuing our, our own passions. And then expression of these passions, giving, giving way, acting on these, these passions, takes the place of God rather than seeking God. And uh, this is seeking ultimate satisfaction through fulfillment of passions. Colson, Chuck Colson calls this um, salvation through sex. Romans 1 says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For their women, so now he's giving an example of that dynamic, right? The, the creature-creator swap, worshipping the creature rather than the creator, and then he gives an example of this. He says, For their women uh, gave up, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so the Christian worldview um, sees homosexuality as a misdirection of the maker's intention. You know, the creational norm uh, that is the norm for the Christian has, has been uh, misdirected, misused. The creature has been swapped out for the creator. And so this is an offense against his design, his intentions for creation. And it's a corruption of a legitimate and good use of our sexuality as male and female. But then a second effect of the fall is that there's often a tension between body and soul. Not only conflict between uh, male and female, but tension between body and soul. So as an instance related to homosexuality, um, there are men who feel attracted to some degree, maybe even exclusively to other men, and there are women who feel attracted to some degree, maybe even exclusively to other women. Um, So the design of the body indicates that a male is completed by a female, that two shall become one flesh, is the way Genesis puts it. But then the immaterial part of a man may, in some cases, uh, you know, the romantic feelings that they experience may not match the body parts. The body indicates completed by a woman. The, the feelings he has may indicate I'm, I'm completed by a man. And, and this creates a certain felt tension, Uh, Tension between the body, the material, and the soul, the immaterial. 
Um, the Lady Gaga song, I don't quit, quote Lady Gaga often, um, but sh- she has a song, Born This Way, uh, that you are probably familiar with. It highlights this, this aspect as an as a, uh, occurrence and an experience of, uh, of many people. We're born hardwired in ways like this that kind of pit our body and soul against one another. And the Christian simply observes that this tension between body and soul reflects the fall, uh, that this often happens um, in human experience. Uh, Now, the Christian worldview says uh, that we must seek to resolve this kind of tension where it occurs uh, by holding together the body and the soul. So a person equals body plus soul together. Um, And so the obvious design of our bodies then gives guidance to our interpretation of our inner feelings. Um, On the other hand, Lady Gaga and the secular revolution as a whole seeks to resolve this tension by separating the body and the soul and then prioritizing the soul, uh, the real you, you know, what you feel down deep inside, uh, prioritizing that over the body. So, if you're a man, you know, your body parts say you're completed by a woman, but your romantic feelings may say you're completed by a man, that same-sex attraction. Um, then the secular revolution, the theology of born this way says, you know, ignore your body and completely indulge your feelings. That's the real you. So again, Nancy Piercy says, to engage in same-sex behavior then is implicitly to say, Um, Why should my moral choices be directed by my body's telos or purpose? Why should the structure of my body have any say in what I do sexually? Uh, Why should it inform my psychological identity? So the implication then is that what really counts is solely my mind, feelings, and desires. And so this is really a a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. Uh, It puts the body beneath the soul. So let me draw just one implication of this then. Um, you know, we, we all live in a broken world. People experience things like this, and, th- and that means we have broken wiring. And that's not necessarily sinful. So a person may be born with same-sex attraction, and the Bible never calls that sinful. Um, the Bible calls ignoring the maker's design sinful, corrupting the male-female complementarity through same-sex relationships and activity. That's, that is sinful. But experiencing same-sex attraction is not. So as Christians, we can acknowledge that as a result of the fall, this kind of experience happens for some people without ostracizing those who feel such things. Um, so when I was in high school, being called gay uh, was, uh, was commonly a term of derision. You know, it was a, like a pejorative thing, an insult among guys. Uh, th- that, kind of, that kind of interaction, that kind of treatment of these issues that are real and significant for many people is, a, is, is really to a failure of, of love and compassion. If you find yourself as a Christian unable or unwilling to extend sympathy toward those who have same-sex attraction, you know, consider all the ways that you yourself are broken and affected by sin. Uh, Paul reminds the Corinthians in the verse that um, Paul brought up in the sermon, this, or Tom brought up in the sermon this morning. Neither this, this is 1 Corinthians six. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Uh, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. And so, you know, first of all there, that he tosses greedy people and gospers in with those who practice homosexuality. He says, really, this is all of us. We are all in the same category, which is sinner. Um, Or as he puts it in Romans chapter 2, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Of course, Paul knew that not all the Jews had practiced all the same things that he had just listed in Romans chapter 1, homosexuality in particular. Uh, But he said we're all in the same category is the point he's making, that we're all uh, sinful, and so there's no room for us to point a self-righteous finger. Now, in those cases, in 1 Corinthians 6 and in Romans 2, referencing back to Romans 1, he's referring to people who are actually in, in practicing homosexual activity. Uh, even in those cases, the Christians shouldn't claim a sort of superiority, but rather should have this kind of humble recognition that we're all sinful. I was once there, but you've been washed, cleansed. And so how much more should we feel uh, compassion and a humility toward those who experience something like same-sex attraction, perhaps by no choice of their own, perhaps they'd rather have heterosexual desires if they could, but, uh, but cannot. If you, I would encourage you, if you're, if you're thinking through this, if you're tracking with me on this kind of difficulty that many heterosexuals feel, um, there's a, a great book by Wesley Hill called Washed and Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. Uh, Wes Hill identifies as a gay Christian. He says he's attracted exclusively to men, uh, and yet he's celibate. That is, he does not practice uh, homosexuality because he's convinced of the Bible's teaching on this topic. Uh, but that book, Washed and Waiting, presents sort of, it's like a personal memoir, his own, his own struggles with these things and experience in the Christian community. As I read it, it, it drew out kind of a, a sense of sympathy where there had been maybe uh, uh, some harder feelings in that regard. And uh, similarly and briefly, here's a testimony by Sam Alberry, who wrote a book called Is God Anti-Gay? I'm all great. Oxford 1X3. Thank you, Chair. Thank you to, uh, to the bishops for their hard work. I'm sure it was painful for them, but I think you don't become a bishop for an easy life. I am same-sex attracted and have been my entire life. Uh, by that I mean that I have sexual, romantic and deep emotional attractions to people of the same sex. I choose to describe myself this way because sexuality is not a matter of identity for me. And that has become good news. My primary sense of worth and fulfilment as a human being is not contingent on being romantically or sexually fulfilled. And this is liberating. The most fully human and complete person who ever lived was Jesus Christ. He never married. He was never in a romantic relationship and never had sex. If we say these things are intrinsic to human fulfillment, we are calling our saviour subhuman. I've met literally hundreds of Christians in my situation. I know of thousands more who are same-sex attracted and who joyfully affirm the traditional understanding of marriage being between a man and a woman and the only godly context for sex. If you don't hear from more of us, it is because it is very hard to stand up 
and describe ourselves in, these, in this way. As someone who uses the language of same-sex attraction, I have to say that my church has not become a safe place for me. And by church, I don't mean my congregation, I mean this synod. Not because of what the report says, but because of what has happened since. I was bullied at school for being gay. I now feel I'm being bullied at synod for being same-sex attracted and faithful to the teaching of Jesus on marriage. I'm grateful the report reaffirms the traditional doctrine of marriage. I'm concerned that we're already preparing to pastorally undermine it. So my question to the bishops is not will you preserve this doctrine, it's do you really believe in it? Is it good news for the world? Many of us have found it to be life-giving, as the message and teaching of Jesus always is. Thank you. So, yeah, without getting into the whole synod background of what's going on there, I just hope that hearing that testimony kind of impresses you again with the, the struggle that is often there and elicits some sympathy. So God, God creates uh, humans, male and female, body and soul, uh, and then the fall corrupts and divides both of these unities, uh, sometimes resulting in same-sex attraction, a kind of disintegration between uh, body and soul, um, which some people are born with and is not necessarily sinful, and, and also then resulting in same-sex, um, same-sex activity, which is willful and chosen, uh, and, and is sinful. So the disintegration of body and soul there at the top often results in same-sex attraction, not sinful. Um, the corruption of male-female relationships often results in same-sex activity, which is chosen and willful and is sinful. All right. Redemption. Well, Jesus affirms the goodness of marriage and sexuality. So the main passage here is Matthew chapter 19. Uh, Jesus is responding to a question that's been put to him, and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is reaffirming there the Genesis uh, teaching about the goodness of marriage and sexuality and the rest of the New Testament follows this pattern. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 teaches that marriage is honorable. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says that there were some people who were forbidding marriage in the church. What's his response to that? He says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And then Hebrews says... Hebrews chapter 13, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So Jesus and the New Testament authors are very positive about the role of human sexuality and the goodness of created bodies and the use of that sexuality. But Jesus also affirms the parameters of marriage and sexuality. So again, in Matthew 19, he establishes God made them male and female and defines marriage as one man, one one woman uh, becoming one flesh, not to be separated. In Hebrews as well, again, let marriage be held in honor among all. You see, affirming the goodness of marriage and sexuality. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. Uh, establishing the parameters of marriage and sexuality. 
This all may sound very familiar to you, you know, so familiar as to be uninteresting perhaps, uh, but I think that in one sense the lines are hardening between those who are holding a traditional view of marriage and those who are wavering or rejecting it. And homosexuality has won decisive victories in our culture. Um, There used to be this question a few years ago, can a a Christian believe uh, homosexual activity is sinful, that same-sex marriage is not biblical, and yet support gay marriage politically, or at least be indifferent on the issue? Um, This was a big question a few years ago, but we're kind of past that. You know, same-sex marriage is now the law of the land, and in one sense, the hotter talking point now is transgender issues, not homosexuality. But I think there are a few important implications for Christians. Um, So two of them here. First, we must construct our identity around Jesus, not our sexual wiring. We have to construct our identity around Jesus, not our sexual wiring. That statement is kind of acknowledging that identity is a constructed thing and that followers of Jesus should be intentionally constructing their sense of who am I, uh, their identity, around Jesus, not around sexual desires. Um, So Jesus teaches us to build our identity on the basis of God's design, which is seen most clearly in the life and person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Trying to grow into his image then is reclaiming and redeeming the image of God in us. Uh, So we are trying to grow into his image. We're not constructing or building our sense of identity around inner impulses, in particular our sexual wiring, nor are we building our sense of identity off the sexual norms of culture. These strong inner impulses, among other things, aren't reliable guides uh, for building an identity. Uh, you know, we're, we're always suppressing some inner feelings and cultivating others. Uh, we choose which feelings or impulses we have uh, that we're going to highlight and which ones we're going to suppress We do this partly on the basis of some external guidance, uh, some belief about an external moral principle, for instance, or perhaps cultural norms. So for Christians, the guidance that God teaches us to follow is in the Bible and Scripture. And in terms of constructing identity, then, we should be countercultural. We um, affirm identity is constructed, but we kind of go in the opposite direction of culture in doing that. We derive our identity from Scripture rather than from within. Tim Keller gives this example. He says, imagine an Anglo-Saxon warrior in Britain in the year 808 A.D., He has two very strong inner impulses and feelings. One is aggression. He loves to smash and kill people when they show him disrespect. Uh, Living in a shame and honor culture with its warrior ethic, he'll identify with that feeling. He'll say to himself, that's me, that's who I am, and I'm going to express that. The other feeling he senses at times is same-sex attraction. To that, he will say, that's not me. I will control and suppress that impulse. Now imagine a young man walking around Manhattan today. He has the same two inward impulses, both equally strong, both difficult to control. What will he say? He'll look at his aggression and think, that is not who I want to be. And will seek deliverance and therapy and anger management programs. He'll look at his sexual desire, however, and include, that is who I am. 
And so the role of external kind of principles, moral principles, perhaps cultural norms, are significant in guiding our interpretation of our inner feelings. Sexual desires themselves are not reliable guides for constructing an identity. Um, A man may desire multiple women. A woman may have very specific desires for a man, not her husband. A woman may feel romantically inclined to a woman at some point and then to men in general at other times. There are many examples of uh, men and women who experience same-sex attraction and live in homosexual relationships and then become Christians and leave it behind and eventually find themselves uh, in happily satisfied in heterosexual marriage later on in life. This doesn't always happen, uh, but it does indicate that our sexual wiring is not the whole of who we are. I would also say there are many people who are Christians who experience same-sex attraction, like Sam Alberry's testimony that you just heard. Um, but then as culture becomes more and more accepting of homosexuality, they, rather than staying true to Scripture like Sam Alberry has, have reinterpreted Scripture uh, to permit same-sex activity. In other words, they, they have constructed their identity around their sexuality And then as the door has kind of opened for them to do so, they rearrange scripture to affirm their new identity. So that rather than constructing their identity on the basis of scripture, they reconstruct scripture on the basis of their sexual desires. Um, So as culture increasingly exalts the role of sexual orientation in the process of developing our sense of identity, who am I? Um, you know, Christians should be intentionally working the other way around, letting Scripture guide our sense of who we are and interpreting our, our sexual wiring. Uh, and so uh, we want to construct identity around Jesus, around Scripture and God's design, not our sexual wiring. And then second, we have to carefully consider um, same-sex wedding ceremonies and attending same-sex wedding ceremonies. Um, this is by far the most, um, the most common question I think that Christians have on this issue. It's the one I've heard the most from people. Perhaps it's one that you were hoping would be addressed. Should I attend a same-sex wedding ceremony? Um, you know, Many have a, a son or daughter, a cousin, aunt or uncle, or a very close family friend who's gay and may be having a wedding ceremony. Maybe you have an engagement announcement or wedding ceremony announcement like this uh, in your house right now. Should a Christian attend a same-sex wedding ceremony? Well, the National Association of Evangelicals conducts a leader's survey annually. The most recent one indicated that more than 61% of evangelical leaders say yes, they would attend a same-sex wedding. Among, that's a pretty broad group of evangelicals. Among conservative evangelicals that hold doctrinal commitments similar to Christ's covenant, uh, there's basically consensus that no, uh, Christians should not attend same-sex weddings. And that includes voices like John Piper, Al Mohler, Kevin DeYoung, um, Russell Moore, the Southern Baptist Convention as a whole, uh, and so on. So what of this question? If you haven't already faced it, no doubt you um, will at some point in the future. Excuse me. And it's, excuse me. Uh, and it's best to decide in advance how you'll handle this because um, it seems almost inevitable that we all will at some point. Well, I think there are two big issues here. On the one hand, um, 
you, you want to love and care for the person who's about to have a, a wedding ceremony like this. Maybe uh, you're even wanting to keep the door open for evangelism at some point in the future by showing them that you really, you really care about them and you want to be there for them in these, these big moments of life. So this point of view are used for yes, uh, you should attend the wedding. Um, but then on the other hand, you, know, you believe according to scripture that homosexuality is sinful and that it's not even a true marriage that they're entering into since marriage is between a man and a woman. Um, so here's Moeller's assessment. You cannot celebrate what you say you know to be sin. You cannot honestly say that same-sex marriage defies the law of God and then join in the celebration of that ceremony. Um, So this is the point of view that argues for no, uh, do not attend the wedding. And most arguments that I've read revolve around one of these, uh, revolve around one of these two issues. And there's an obvious tension between these two legitimate lines of reasoning. Um, So yes, we should love people, and yes, we should have evangelistic desire, and often these are our own family members that are entering into these uh, so-called marriages. And yet, we do believe it's a sinful lifestyle, and... uh, and so what, what do we do with the tension between these, these two things? Uh, well, one suggestion I would make is that our view of truth about what marriage is is defined by God and what sin is as de- defined by God um, should probably guide our understanding of what it actually means to be loving and caring. Um, so, for instance, it's not loving and caring to celebrate someone's actions if you know those actions to be harmful to them. So, in that sense, I think number two outweighs number one. But I would encourage you to read the arguments on this issue. There's lots of good articles posted online from all those different names and many others that I mentioned. I'd encourage you to take some time to read through uh, those articles, to think about the biblical issues involved. And, uh, and to prayerfully consider this issue in, in advance of getting um, you know, some engagement or wedding announcement that you'll have to respond to. Don't simply borrow the discernment of others. I'm not, I'm not suggesting you do that, but I'm suggesting you practice your own discernment in a, in a, in a, you know, alongside the, m- many others who have thought about this and maybe alongside some others in this room as well, uh, thinking and talking about it with other believe, believers. You know, some of you are really upset I didn't just say yes or no. Um, but, um, but I hope that's some decent guidance for you. If, you. if you would like some links to those articles, they're actually really easy to find if you go to Gospel Coalition, uh, thegospelcoalition.org, um, and type in, should I attend a same-sex wedding, or you know, just Google it, and you'll find you know, Desiring God has some stuff. So that, that's all very easy to find. If you, if you want links, I'm happy to send them to you if you give me your email address. So those, those are two big implications um, that I think, you know, as redeemed Christians trying to walk out a biblical worldview that we should be um, careful to give attention to. And then fourth, restoration. Um, so at death, what happens? You know, in the end, uh, how will all this uh, conclude? <clears throat> um, so at, at death, the soul departs from the body, right? 
So the body goes into the ground, the soul goes uh, to be with the Lord or to judgment. But on the last day, uh, bodies will be reconstituted and reunited with the soul. Um, So our our template here in this kind of reunion of soul and body is, of course, Jesus being raised from the dead. Uh, His soul and body come back together, uh, yet he retains a real human uh, a gendered body. He comes back as a, a male, recognizable to others. And so, um, you know, this is our template. This is, this is what we should expect in our resurrection. When our bodies are reunited with our souls, uh, we will be uh, gendered in the same way. Uh, your body for eternity will be much like your body is now. So if you don't like it, I'm sorry. I hope you like what you've got because chances are you're stuck with it for eternity. Um, the, the, the point is that the, the, the template of Jesus is basically the template we follow. And yet these bodies will be glorified, body and soul reunited in a uh, tensionless kind of union, uh, male and female restored to a conflictless kind of harmony. Um, so what, what about marriage and sexuality? Well, we don't really know much on this. We know that our bodies will be gendered, but we don't know much about the relationship. Of course, we have this statement from Jesus you may be thinking of already in Matthew 22. He says, in the resurrection, uh, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But are like angels in heaven. Okay? (laughs) That's helpful. Um, So... We won't. We, there, there will not be um, exclusive, permanent sexual relationships within marriage in heaven. Jesus tells us that, and then we're just left with a lot of questions. Um, you know, so you'd, you'd like to ask Jesus a follow-up question on this issue, um, and so I'm sure we will when we get there, or it'll just be obvious to us. But I think much beyond that is speculation. So. Um, All right, so that's just applying biblical worldview to the topic of homosexuality, trying to draw out a couple implications. I've pointed out, I think, three um, cultural engagement kind of issues here. One is what's your attitude, sort of your your feelings in response to those who have same-sex attraction. I would encourage you to be loving, compassionate, sympathetic, have a listening ear, be sensitive to the struggles that are there. Um, Number two, intentionally constructing our identity around Jesus, not our sexual wiring. Um, you know, as Christians, uh, maybe as a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction, there's always going to be the temptation and danger of constructing identity around that feeling. And then uh, the more you do that, the more there will be temptation to reinterpret Scripture in an unfaithful way. So I think as Christians, we need to be working together at, at constructing our identities according to Christ and scripture. And then third, um, should you attend a same-sex wedding? A question that many of us uh, have or soon will face, and I'm not giving a definitive answer, uh, but I'd be happy to talk with you further about that or point you to some really great resources on it.